So the title is Conceptualizing New Age and Neo-Pagan Ritual. Uh, so this is an exploratory paper uh, in which a brief analysis of several small ceremonies is used to make a theoretical argument about ritual. Uh, specifically, I will try to illustrate and propose a model of the relationship between what I tend to think of as two very different modes of ritualization. I should say that this whole project was a result of a kind of a rude awakening I spent a, a long period developing uh, with Carlo Sivry in particular a certain approach to ritual which we called a relational uh, approach and uh, this work this was surprisingly useful uh, as a tool and worked very well for a number of rituals in a number of cultural areas um, until I came across a certain ceremonial forms uh, of that uh, are part of the new age and neo-pagan uh, movement in which it just didn't work at all. Um, this whole, this whole, you know, methodology that we had developed just—you could apply it, but it just didn't do the work that we expected it to. No matter how much I paid it to, 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 to do that. Um, and so I was prompted to try and develop uh, another approach that would. Um, be more adequate to these strange objects that I had to deal with. And at the same time, I didn't want to abandon the stuff that I had already done. And uh, so I had to try and work, and this is what I'm going to try and uh, talk to you about, uh, find some type of uh, overarching conceptual framework in which I could have my cake and eat it too. Uh, so that's what I'm going to try and outline here. So many contemporary rituals are organized in what we might call a canonical fashion. In them, perform the performance of unusual stipulated actions is presumed to afford the participants with out-of-the-ordinary intentional and emotional experiences. Exceptional enactments are expected to give rise to special thoughts and feelings. Other contemporary rituals, however, regardless of the symbolism they may make use of and of the functions that can be attributed to them, seem to be founded on a rather different principle. While here also the undertaking of special actions is supposed to impact upon participants' feelings and beliefs, the ritual actions in question are presumed to derive in large part from what these same participants feel and believe, and in particular what they feel and believe they should be feeling and believing. Now, when I first came across ritual practices of this second, less classical variety, notably within the context of New Age and neo-pagan ceremonial, I felt like the Eskimo in a Larry, Gary, Lar Gar Gary Larson cartoon who, watching extraterrestrials shaped like large cactuses debark from their flying saucer, announces to his companion, they're like nothing I've ever seen. Now, I still feel a bit this way, and one of my current concerns is to account for such cactus-like rituals, and that's the vocabulary I will be using, in a way that both does justice to their own internal logic and relates this logic to the characteristic features of what might be called good old polar bear-like rituals. That is, those which, as a mainstream anthropologist, I have no problem recognizing as rituals. In order to be as clear as possible about such matters, I will be using material drawn from a contemporary Western tradition. Specifically, I will be comparing a series of ritual scripts for neo-pagan rites of release that are performed on the death of a pet. Doing so will allow me to follow the progression of what is, in, to a large extent, the same ritual as it moves from a polar bear mode 
to a cactus mode. And just as an indication to how important uh, deaths relating to uh, uh, rituals relating to the deaths of pets have become, this is just something I did a, a, a while ago, just tracing out new books published on pet death uh, from Amazon and how that's, that's developed uh, uh, over time. So the first script I want to look at um, comes from Dorothy Morrison's book, Everyday Magic. Her pet death euthanasia ritual is about as polar bear-like a neo-pagan ritual one can find. It requires incense, candles, a flower, a piece of rose quartz, vinegar, and honey. And we'll just, I'll read through it very quickly. Light sand, light, you light sandalwood incense, a white candle, and a red candle, and greet the Lord and the Lady by saying, I come to you now to release this pain and all emotional beasts that plague my heart so heavily. Take them from me. Set me free. Take a flower and name it for your pet. Holding it in your hand, stroke the petals and speak to your pet with love and honesty. If euthanasia was a factor, explain your reasons for terminating his her life cycle. If not, this is a good time to talk to your pet about the loneliness you feel without him or her. Place the flower on the altar and lay the rose quartz on top of it. Tell your pet that the stone will always represent him or her to you and explain that he, she, is free to go to Summerland for rebirthing. Say, you're free to go now, my little one. Rejoice and play. The time has come for your spirit to be on its way. Have fun. Be happy. Your love will stay. Meditate on the spirit of your pet moving on. Then place a drop of vinegar on your tongue to represent the sourness we feel when death takes a loved one. Take some time to grieve for what might have been. Scream, cry, yell, whatever you need to do to get it out of your system. When you can cry no more, Taste some honey. Rejoice and celebrate the relationship you had with your pet. Remember all the good times you had, the love you shared, and the special spot the pet filled in your life. Extinguish the candles and thank the Lord and Lady for their comforting presence. Release the flower into a body of water, such as a river or a stream. Wish it a fond farewell as it floats away. Keep the stone close to you or put it in a safe place. So let's look at how this ritual is constructed. This is not a full analysis, it's just to make a theoretical point. Notice, first of all, the parallel set up by the rhymed speech addressed to the Lord and the Lady on the one hand, and that addressed to the deceased pet on the other. After having asked to be set free from the emotional beast that plague his or her heart, the mourner tells the pet that it is free to go. The Lord and the Lady, the mourner and the pet are thus made to stand in a transitive relationship. The pet is to its master or mistress as the latter is to the Lord and the Lady. The transition from one of these speeches to the other is mediated by the pet's association, first with a flower and then with a piece of quartz. These two associations, however, imply very different things. The caressed and bespoken flower intervenes not so much as the absent pet itself, who, as the mourner knows perfectly well, is dead and gone, then in the pet's place. That is, as the material means whereby the mourner's intimate relationship with his, his, her beloved pet is ritually acted out. The quartz, on the other hand, which is pointedly not spoken to and is placed on top of the flower on the altar, embodies not this ritualized relationship, but rather a distanced representation of it, something, and I quote from the ritual, that will always represent him, her, to you. This progression from a deceased pet 
to a contrived enactment of the mourner's close connection with the pet, to a conventional enduring representation of this enactment, a concrete memory, if you will, is marked by a gradually decreasing level of animation from animal, the pet, to vegetal, flower, to mineral, the quartz. In the closing sequence, the candles are extinguished and the Lord and the Lady are thanked in inverted symmetry of the opening scene. The flower standing in the stead of the dead pet is made to float away, while the stone that stands in the stead of the flower remains with the mourner. Now, what is striking in this ritual is the primacy of prescribed action. The mourner is simply instructed to do this or that. Very little is explained. The meanings attributable to the actions undertaken, such as talking to a flower as though it were a cherished animal, or feeling sadness or joy on command, remain partially uncertain. Through the performance of these complex, partially indeterminate items of behavior, a network of special ritual relationships with the pet, with the lord and the lady, with the flower, the quartz, the candles, the stream, is brought into being. It is the mourner's participation his personal involvement in this new exceptional network of relationships that affords him or her with a singular, largely indisputable emotion and intention-laden experience. And of course, it is in the light of this singular experience that the mourner's everyday relationships may be re-evaluated and eventually transformed. Everyday relationships with the pet and with others. Even in what is ostensibly the most feeling-centered part of the ritual, the vinegar and honey sequence, the mourner's private emotional and intentional states are purported to follow from his, her outward behavior. The mourner is enjoined to place vinegar and honey on his or her tongue so as to bring about the expression of his or her negative and positive feelings and reflections. The mourner's feelings and reflections are pointedly not taken to provide the basis for the ritual actions themselves. This changes somewhat in the second version now of this same ritual. So let's look at the second ritual. This is a rite of release for a beloved pet adapted by Stormwing from a 1993 article in Circle Network News by Morigano. So... The altar setting is simple. One central candle, white or whatever color feels right, as well as three others, black, red, and white, to be lit during the ritual. A flower, fully opened, preferably a rose, or whatever color seems appropriate to you, which becomes the symbol of your lost one. It is best to perform this rite of release when the moon is at her darkest, before she is renewed. Begin by lighting the central candle and if you wish performing a ritual of purification. Then proceed with these words. It is the way of life that all living beings, whether early or late, come unto death, that in time they may come round again to circle into life. Pick up and hold, cradle if you wish, the flower, rose, or whatever you choose, for symbolically this is your lost loved one. And so unto death have you gone, my little one. Heart of my heart, I will always remember the deep love that we shared and will always share. Like this flower, a thing of joy and beauty in all its glory, so you were for me a wondrous and magical little being, added to share the years of pleasure that we did. Thank you for your precious gift. 
Of the triple goddess, she who opens and shuts all doors, lady of all joys and sorrows, I ask you, and while lighting the black candle, one should say, that the crone lovingly fly you to summerland, wrapped in the softest black feathers, lighting the red candle, that the mother always comfort you in her loving embrace, lighting the white candle, that the maiden always smile brightly upon you. Know that there will always be an empty place under my heart that cannot be filled where your memory shall dwell forever. I bid you a pleasant journey and a peaceful sojourn. Rest well, be renewed, and return again when you are ready. Fare thee well until we meet again. Extinguish only the central candle. Take the flower and go outside to some special site you have chosen, where you have prepared a hole, and bury the flower there, saying these words as you do. As this hole is filled, so let my wound, wound be healed. For even as this flower returns to Mother Earth to return again someday as life, so will you, my little one, so will you, my little one. And as leaf and stem and petal are drawn back into the womb, so let my grief be drawn in to return once again as joy. The cosmology is slightly different. There's a lord and the lady in the first one. This is the, the, the goddess in her three manifestations. Summerland is the place where pets go to await rebirthing when they come back and reincarnation. But all well, this is peripheral to the point I'm trying to make. As in the previous case, candles are lit and extinguished, divinities are petitioned, and a flower is spoken to and then disposed of. However, two related features of this script are indicative of a shift towards a more cactus-like ritual mode. First of all, a clear effort is made to assign determinate meaning to the actions undertaken. Items of ritual behavior lose a measure of their mystery to become either straightforward manipulation, the straightforward manipulation of iconic representations, the flower becomes the symbol of the lost pet, or explicit analogies, like this flower, so you were for me a wondrous and magical little being. As this hole is filled, so let my wound be healed, etc. In this way, ritual actions are made more transparent, more accessible. They are trivialized in that they are made more easily accountable in terms of everyday intentional and emotional states. This effort to assign explicit meanings to ritual actions goes together with a second novel quality, which is the instrumental primacy accorded to the participants' feelings and beliefs. These feelings and beliefs are held to play an essential role in determining the ritual actions to be performed. Thus, over and over again, the mourner is made to choose what feels right for him or her. This twofold shift away from polar bear rituality introduces a change in the very logic underlying ritual performance. Here, ritual per performance consists less in participants undertaking certain prescribed, somewhat mysterious actions that engage them in special ritually engendered relationships. Rather, it consists in their assuming certain special feelings and attitudes which their ritual actions are then fairly straightforwardly held to express. We're having something is changing here. It changes much more dramatically in the third example. In the third and last ritual I want to consider, which is the most cactus-like of the three, it's a visualization in the case of pet death. 
proposed by Patricia Telesco in the Victorian Grimoire from 1994. (coughs) Begin in the area where you spend most of your time with the creature. Take their toys, a picture, and other items which carry your pet's special energy. Get comfortable. Close your eyes and begin breathing deeply. Try to settle your mind and heart as hard as that may be for you to do. Next, in your mind's eye, see your pet approach you in this space, just as it normally would have. What you are seeing is a spiritual energy of of your animal. Don't be surprised at the reactions you have to this. This is a very emotional experience. It should not be stifled. Open your arms and greet the animal. Give it a long, enduring embrace and speak all the feelings you have in your mind and heart. As you do, visualize these warm emotions as red-purple light flowing from you to your spirit pet. Continue until you feel relieved and less distressed. When you are finished, release the spirit pet and allow it to go its own way. It may be reluctant to do so, it may be reluctant to go as pets hold a special love for their owners too, but encourage the transition. As the animal moves away, you may notice a line of energy connecting the two of you. If so, you must break that cord so that both of you can be free. I have found this often happens when there is a deep, abiding empathy between pet and owner. When your spirit pet is finally out of sight, visualize a a white-green light pouring over you to wash away the sorrow. Continue in this manner as long as you wish, returning to normal awareness when you feel your message was received and understood. Now, in this ritual script, overt material performance has all but disappeared. Almost everything is purported to happen in the mind's eye. Even the pet's picture, its favorite toys and places, are not important in their own right, but as so many repositories of the animal's special energy. Similarly, the relationship between the pet and its owner is not so much acted out as it is visualized by the mourning party. Speeches spoken out loud to the deceased animal and to personified divinities in the first two cases, for example, here are replaced by beams of red-purple and white-green light which are seen to flow respectively from the mourner to the pet and over the mourner him or herself. The participant's capacity to undertake this ritual, that is to perceive the animal's spiritual energy, to engage with the spiritual, the spirit pet, to break the binding line of energy, to picture the beams of colored light and so forth, relies on his or her ability to give imaginary form to certain highly valued emotional and intentional qualities, compassionate benevolence towards lesser creatures, creative projection, spiritual communication, and so forth. It is indeed the immaterial visualized performances that proceed from such an emulation that are deemed to have an effect on the participant's personal attitudes and beliefs. In other words, it is by acting as another out-of-the-ordinary self in the course of the ritual that the mourner is made to feel, and I quote, relieved and less distressed, to feel that the message was received and understood, and so forth. Full-fledged cactus-like rituals such as these, although Telesco's visualization is in some way an extreme case, differ from those of the polar bear variety in in at least three important ways. 
First, ritual performance does not consist in pursuing what are taken to be stipulated forms of behavior. Instead, it follows from the conventional emulation of what are held to be exemplary feelings and motivations. In this case, actions do not have value in themselves, but are only there as a means. And what counts is not so much what you do, but what you do does. Uh, for example, if I, I want to become, get in contact with the earth, you should do this. But if for you this works better, then go for it. Because the action in itself doesn't have any value on its own. It's just a means to do something else. Huh? And that is why many of these traditions borrow from many other traditions, a whole variety, a plurality of traditions, not to, as models to reproduce, but as resources from which to construct something that's more appropriate to their own personal situation. So the idea here, once again, all this turns around the fact that action is no longer the center of concern. The idea is not to reproduce what others are presumed to have done before, it's to reap the, but rather to reproduce the spirit in which they are presumed to have done them. So being faithful to tradition here is not doing what others have done, but it's rather something closer to being what I, be, becoming what others have been. It's a rather different twist. Second of all, because such rituals are centered less on the performance of archetypal actions, Humphrey and Lydlow, than on the personification, personification of exemplary dispositions, not the actions they did, but rather the spirit, the, the spirit in which they did the actions, their effectiveness bears witness less to the exceptional character of the items of behavior themselves than to the remarkable nature of the performers. Instead of somewhat mysterious ritual actions, we have somewhat mysterious ritual agents who accomplish these actions. Third, given the refracted nature of the performer's participation, he or she is expected to be personally affected by performances arising from his or her own emulation of exemplary feelings and beliefs, these rituals are imminently reflexive, as attested by the various asides in the last example. Don't be surprised at the reactions you have to this. You may notice a line of energy. I have found this often happens. The participants are prompted to consciously relate to images that they knowingly generate themselves. The position they occupy is not only to see the pet that bears the spirit pet that bears witness to their extraordinary capacities, but also to see themselves see the pet, which bears witness to their ordinary nature. And it's both of these at the same time that are co-present. Now, as I see it, a major challenge in the anthropological study of ritual is to, and I, just as an aside, and I say this because for me, these type of ceremonial practices are but a particularly uh, condensed version of things that are m very widespread in contemporary Western culture, from everything from psychotherapy to reality TV, going through many things. I see a major challenge in the, study, in the anthropological study of ritual is to integrate these divergent, what I've called polar bear and cactus-like varieties of ritualization within a common conceptual framework. So now I would like to briefly outline 
what such a framework might look like. The performance I have considered may be qualified as ritual, and I'm using this now as a technical word, as opposed to, or in addition to, being instances of play, spectacle, or what have you, to the degree to which participants' actions are presumed to have an effect on their personal feelings and attitudes. And that's the idea of actions, the arrow goes towards dispositions. In other words, they are instances of ritual to the extent to which participants' attention is focused on how their emotional and intentional dispositions may be understood as following from the performance of their actions. According to this view, ritual or ritualization, and I use the two words interchangeably, is best understood as a particular way of paying attention to what one is doing with others. It is one, one among several possible modes of participation that differs, for example, from that which governs much of everyday interaction, in which, on the contrary, participants' attention is focused above all on how their actions may be understood as the expression of their emotional and, and intentional dispositions, where the arrow would go from dispositions to actions from D to A. Now, while ritual may be thought of, always in this view, as being potentially present in almost any type of interactive situation, the design features of certain events favor a ritual mode of participation more than others, and there could be any number of them, repetition, the use of distinctive designations, the convocation of absent uh, authorities, and so forth. However, foremost among these design features is and I, I'm, I'm suggesting, is the incorporation of a measure of structural indeterminacy or complexity that endows lived-through performance with a degree of self-reference that makes it difficult for the participants to make sense of what they're doing in any other than ritual, that is, A to D terms. Uh, when I take a glass of water and I drink, it's fairly easy to imagine, and one spontaneously does, that that action is a result of certain dispositions, which I'm thirsty, I want to drink a glass of water, whatever. If, however, I do this, and, and I do this about ten times, that hypothesis begins eroding, uh, being eroded, and then all of a sudden one begins imagining that perhaps that action has value in itself, and its value is presumably to be found in the way it might impact upon the person who's doing it and their, their dispositions. So what I'm saying is that there are certain design features of events that kind of prompt the adoption of a certain mode of participation, one of which, and I'm saying that there are many of them, one of which would be ritual, and it's defined as simply centering one's attention on, on the aptitude one actions might have to have an effect upon one's dispositions or, say it the other way around, centering one's attention on how the, the one's emotional and intentional experiences might be laid to the account of the performance of certain actions. Okay. My suggestion in a nutshell, so I'm saying all ritual would need this complexity. My suggestion in a nutshell is that polar bear and cactus-like performances exploit two different ways of incorporating this indeterminacy. In polar bear-type rituals, this is done by making the action side of the A to D equation more complex. 
notably by means of what Carlos Severi and I have called ritual condensation, in which nominally contrary forms of relationship are enacted simultaneously. I'm at once in a relationship with the flower and with my pet. And usually my way of acting with pets is not quite the same thing as the flower, but in that ritual situation, these two are indistinguishable from each other, and that's what makes them special with regard to everyday interaction. Such action-centered complexity, uh, in which ritual is seen as founded upon the, 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 the generation of, of complexity in action, gives rise to highly evocative items of behavior, that are nevertheless difficult to account for in terms of everyday feelings and motivations. And that's what I put on this side here. Uh, Basically, in ritual, the idea here is that fairly simple people are doing complicated things. They're one of the the complex things. And what what makes it complex, what they're doing, is they're doing several usually fairly contrary things at the same time. And doing them has an effect on their dispositions. Now, because... Uh, because these actions incorporate types of actions and types of relationships that are nominally incompatible, it's not self-evident what are the dispositions that might result from the accomplishment of these actions. If I have a ritual action that consists of saying, uh, oh, my pen, I love you, you love you, it's just my sweet pen, I've never had such a nice pen, it's fairly easy to imagine what would be the dispositional correlate of that action. If, at the same time, I were to say, you nasty, terrible, damn pen, there also one can imagine fairly easily what might be the dispositional correlate of it. But but in fact, what I'm suggesting is that in many rituals, polar bear variety, the type of thing is more something like, oh, I love you, you little pen, you're my favorite little pen. And there it's not obvious exactly what the dispositions are, and in part this is negotiated by each person as a function of their idiosyncratic history and situation, all the while being kind of inflected by the performance of uh, the, the, the action itself. On the other side, so that would be for the complexity, the inherent complexity based on action that would be proper to what I've called um, polar bear mode of ritualization. In cactus-type rituals, on the, under, on the other hand, indeterminacy is incorporated by complexifying the disposition side of the A to D equation uncertainly pertains less to what exactly is being done. As I mentioned, behavior is typically made transparent and easy to interpret, and many practitioners of these rituals make special efforts to do this, and they write books about it, and they talk endlessly about trying to make explicit the meanings of what the actual is, then to who exactly is doing it. The mechanism at work in such agent-centered or agency-centered complexity is what I suggest might be called ritual refraction. Participants are emotionally and intentionally affected, D, by performances that proceed from their own conventional emulation of exemplary emotional and intentional dispositions. What I put is D prime up here. These exemplary dispositions, presumed to be distinct from the participants' everyday feelings and attitudes, are often associated with non-Western or pre-Christian figures, Amerindian shamans, Tibetan monks, Druid priests, or what have you, or with more authoritative, authentic, or natural aspects of the participants themselves, my spiritual side, my higher self, my inner child. The dynamic of refraction, just to give an example, would be 
Let me just take the, the example of fire walking uh, in, in, in a weekend where people do this in order to to overcome the fear they have, the idea is that uh, fear is just false evidence appearing real. Uh, this is something that is part of socialization, that in fact we've been trained to be afraid of certain things. But one's original state, one wasn't afraid, and one needs to get back in contact with this original state, one's inner, one's inner self, uh, that hasn't kind of uh, uh, undergone the perversion of socialization that has kind of limited your view both of yourself and your relationships with the world. And so there's a lot of things one has to do. One meditates, one does drumming, one, one talks about oneself to others, and there's a lot of things going on. You build the fire, you come up to the fire, and the person running it says, okay, now you visualize the fire in front of you, which already is a little strange. You know, the fire is in front of you, but no, you've got to visualize the fire in front of you, and when you hear the fire inviting you in, then you walk in. And so you walk in, and you go through, and you get to the other side, you go, <laughs> way. The one who does way is not the inner guy. It's just you uh, who does that. And the idea is that both are co-present, and that means that the person actually doing it, the action itself is not particularly mysterious at all, but the person doing it becomes rather difficult to grasp in terms of ordinary patterns of interaction and, and, and emotional states. Uh, which means that in this, these cactus-type rituals, the prototypical injunction is uh, light a red candle or of the color you think best, which is not at all the same thing as light the candle of any color you want or do what you want. That would be more something of like everyday interaction, which one's actions are presumably the expression of one's dispositions. Here, there's a presumption that there is a way, a proper way to do it, and it's up to you to find it. So it's a little more complicated, and indeed, I would say, a little more complex, but this complexity is not in action. It's rather in the agents that are undergoing the actions. Um, I have a... Maybe I'll do it at, at, at the end. Okay. Um, so action-centered uh, ritualizations of the, of the first type um, in which singular agents are made to undertake complex pluralistic, pluralistic actions, what I've marked as A plus A prime, may be fruitfully understood as the enactment of special out-of-the-ordinary relationships between the participants, but also with other exceptional entities. Flowers come pets, lords and ladies, candles, places, liturgical pronouncements, and so forth. Agent-centered ritualizations of the second type, what I've called cactus, in which singular actions are undertaken by what are made to become complex pluralistic agents, what I've marked with the D and D prime, are best understood as the experience of special, out-of-the-ordinary subjecthoods in which the participants take on the qualities of exceptional entities themselves. Now, one interesting difference about these two ritual modes is their... I, I was going to say their material underpinning, but I don't know what... You, well, their underpinning. You'll see what I mean in a moment. The first type, cactus... In the first type, the emergence of ritual relationships is typically mediated by the manipulation of material objects. And I mean manipulation in a 
in a, in a direct sense of being able to be handled. And I suspect that this requirement of materiality um, is something that allows for the anchoring of this whole relational network into something unnegotiably non-relational, which is the physicality and the manipulability of objects. However, in the second case, in which objects also do occur, but it would seem that the emergence of ritual subjecthoods in the cactus case is typically mediated by the reflexive creation of percepts, perceptions. For instance, through the visualization of immaterial images. And this is something that I think is essential in this second tradition, is this idea of reflexivity. It is very, none of the people who do this ever say that they are unequivocally, and that's it, just a shaman or a Tibetan monk or, a, or, or their inner self, period. And they said, no, you have to be crazy to believe that. The point is that they are that, and also George, who likes spaghetti and at the same time. And that's what's exceptional. That's what makes it so. So it's not it, the, the the analogy I'm making is between the way one one develops complex agents. In this case, is analogous to the way one develops complex actions. In the other case, by bringing these. Uh, different things uh, together, such that practitioners of this tradition, without calling into question the efficacy of their ceremonial behavior, can perfectly well say, well, yeah, I mean, it's only a metaphor, you know. It's just a metaphor. Yeah. Because the whole point is you don't want to get lost in it entirely. Once again, you want to have, you want to see the animal, the pet that comes towards you, and also see you seeing that. And that allows you to, to not collapse these two into one and to maintain this tension that defines the complexity of these ritually engendered agents in the same way that in the more uh, polar bear situation um, one, one keeps uh, ritual actions as being partially mysterious and that, 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 that sustains their, their, their efficacy. Now, um, I would like to just... Uh, as a last thing, just to to, uh, to give a demonstration of this ritual refraction, um, what I want to what I would like to to, sh to show you is a small film, uh, um, which uh, is, uh, is part of a movement called uh, Law of Attraction. I don't know if this means anything to you, but basically the idea is that if I think of something in a clear enough fashion and I visualize it, I am able to, 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 to concentrate on it in my mind's eye, this contributes to its actually coming into being. Okay. And the idea is, I mean, this is, you might recognize a lot of this, you see, it's not just, hasn't just shown up out of nowhere. This is positive thinking, and this goes back to this whole, at least 150 years of tradition that is now, of, of which these types of rituals are now, uh, a, a particularly salient uh, manifestation, but in fact, this is something that we're relatively familiar with in, as contemporary Westerners. Huh? It, it, is, it, it doesn't shock us particularly the idea of, you know, getting in contact with my true self. One might, uh, but 
we, okay, we kind of have an idea of what people mean when they say that. Um, people from other cultures hearing that would just not necessarily understand anything. So this is a film in which you are invited uh, by using certain visual aids to, um, to become the, a complex agent, to, in, to indulge in ritual refraction. And this exercise is very similar to one that's often given at the end of um, firewalking um, uh, uh, weekends, in which a person uh, is, is told to write down on a Bristol card, I walk on fire, I can do anything I want. And to put this card in, uh, in the mirror in one's bathroom, and then every morning when you get up, you washing your teeth and you look at that card and you say it and you say I walked up and you okay I could do anything All right. now my, what I'm suggesting is that that's actually fairly complex thing going on here because when I'm saying that it's not obviously who or where I am I'm me who's there and then I'm saying it but I'm also me at the same time and I'm saying it to me that type of reverberating indeterminacy regarding the nature of who exactly is doing it is the type of thing I'm getting at. And that for me is precisely the experience of that, of being both ordinary and extraordinary at the same time, is something that this other type of ritual tradition uh, is working at. Okay, thank you very much.